Today we're going to continue our study in the inspiration and preservation of the Word of God. I believe this will be part four. Last time we were together, we were looking at proofs of inspiration, and these included the Bible itself says and declares that it is the Word of God. It's indestructibility throughout history um, as as God's enemies have tried to destroy the scriptures. Uh, it's still around, still the number one best-selling book in the world. Uh, it's transmission, the painful uh, process that the scribes um, and the people with the copyists who tr- copied the scriptures, transmitted the scriptures, uh, took to ensure its accuracy. Uh, and then also we looked at fulfilled prophecy. It is the only spiritual book in the world that contains prophecy. And then we looked at its scientific accuracy. The Bible is not a science book, and every time it speaks of science, it is 100% accurate. And then today we're going to look at its uh, history. History as a proof of the inspiration of the Bible as well, uh, especially in the realm of archaeology. Uh, it has been said that with every turn of the archaeologist, the archaeologist spade, another skeptic is put to silence. Uh, Haley's Bible Handbook lists 112 examples of this happening, and Unger's Bible Handbook lists 96 times this has happened. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, it says that the Garden of Eden was located in the lower Mesopotamian Valley, and it is now referred to, even by evolutionists, as the cradle of civilization or the birthplace of human life. In Genesis chapter number 11, verses 1 through 9, it mentions the Tower of Babel, or Babel, and dozens of ziggurats have been found in that area of Mesopotamia. Uh, The Bible also states that the birthplace of Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 31. And for many years, people doubted if Abraham really even existed until 1922, when an archaeologist by the name of C.L. Woolley found it. It is now one of the best known ancient sites in the world. And it dates back to around 2000 B.C. So history has repetitively shown the accuracy of the word of God. And then transformed lives speaks to the word of God. And I believe this is one of the most powerful proofs as to the inspiration of the Bible. It's the lives of the people that it has transformed. I mean, there is not enough room today to go into the list of lives that have been elevated to new levels of peace and joy simply by turning their lives over to Christ. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse number nine, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. That's how. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12 says, The word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both the joints and the marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God is powerful. It pierces through the darkness. There's no doubt that the Bible has changed the lives of many. If you've never given yourself to reading biographies 
I would encourage you to do so. Read the biographies of um, of William Carey. Read the biographies um, of uh, George Mueller. Read the biographies of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint. I mean, it'll just blow you away how God used these people. The word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. There is no doubt that the Bible has changed the lives of many. The apostle Paul said of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and I was a persecutor and I was a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief or foremost of all. The Word of God, one of the most powerful proofs, is transformed lives. And that brings us to the issue of inerrancy, the inerrancy of the Word of God. Now, the word inerrant means without error. Uh, Packer says that it means that the Scripture in its entirety is free from all falsehood, all fraud, all deceit. However, that can mean different things to different people. Some hold to absolute inerrancy, which means that the Bible is absolutely true in all areas that it addresses in the areas of science and history. Others hold to full inerrancy, which means that the Bible is completely true but it is not given primarily to scientific or historical data. Another view is referred to as limited inerrancy, which means that the Bible is only inerrant in issues of salvation and not necessarily facts in any other area. And then, of course, others hold to view that the Bible is only inerrant in its purpose. So you see, when you say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, it's not saying much. What is your definite? It's, it's really about defining terms. If you listen to someone like uh, Ravi Zacharias, you know, an apologist, or even someone on the secular level like Ben Shapiro, and they go into a debate, the first thing they do is define terms. Why? Because one word can mean something totally different to you than it means to me. For example, the word freedom. What does freedom mean to you? It may not mean the same thing to me. Inerrancy. What does it mean to you? It may not mean the same thing to me. So if you're going to get into a debate, and a lot of the little tit for tat that I see on Facebook and in, and in other more sophisticated forums, uh, Facebook is not on that level, let me say, um, the first thing you got to do is define terms. And when you start getting into tit for tats, it's because there's a disagreement in the terms, the definition of the terms. But why is inerrancy so important? Does the whole of Christianity rest on how many stalls for horses King Solomon really had in 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 Kings 4:26 and 2 Chronicles 9:25? Does it? The argument is simply the Bible's the word of God, the Bible cannot err, therefore the Bible, which is the word of God, cannot err. That means that the Bible is factually accurate and correct 
in what it affirms. That is inerrancy. However, that does not apply just to the original autographs. We no longer have the autographs. We do not have the the parchments that contain Paul's DNA or Peter's DNA. Or does it also extend down to the copies of those autographs? Now, that's what we do have. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that there are indeed grammatical errors in the manuscripts that we have today. There's no doubt. You can compare one issue of the King James Bible with another issue of the King James Bible, and the words are spelled differently. You know, I'm humored sometimes when people are standing on the King James, which I use and I love, and I, I believe it is very accurate, if not the most accurate translation of the scriptures that we have today, in my opinion. But if you go back and look at the original 1611, you couldn't read it. I can't read it. Pull it up. Take a look at it. I mean, there's differences in spelling. And sometimes the differences in spelling are, are recognizable throughout the different versions of it. So there's no doubt that there are variations. And variations have occurred as the result of handwritten scribal errors in the course of making copies and were not part of the originally inspired autographs themselves. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed um, to to argue contrarywise to that. I mean, you can see that, that some numbers have maybe been flipped or copied wrong. Um, no way around it. However, of the nearly 5,700 New Testament manuscripts that we have today, which are copies of the autographs, they can be reconstructed, listen to me now, with over 99% accuracy. Therefore, it has to be concluded that the issue of inerrancy certainly does apply to the originals and not necessarily the copies. But again, we're talking 99%. That's a large number. We do not have the originals. We do not have the autographs. But we do have the manuscripts, and there is no doubt that on minor little... I'm not talking about anything doctrinal here at all. I'm not talking about the virgin birth or the deity of the Christ or the second coming or the, or the inerrancy of Scripture. Or, you know, Nothing like that. I'm talking about just numbers or words that were flipped or letters in the words that were flipped. I mean, we can see that. But we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And I've taught this on other occasions. We believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. Plenary means all. Verbal means words. Inspired means God-breathed. We believe that all words are God-breathed in the original autographs. No doubt about that. No doubt. But there's no doubt that we can still maintain inerrancy even to the translations that we hold in our hands today with 99% accuracy. Now, some might want to fight over that. That's fine. You can do that. Okay, You can do that. I was raised in an environment that really loved to do that. But we're talking 99%. And there's no doubt there are some translations that stink. Okay, I don't like them. I do not like dynamic equivalence. I don't like thought for thought translations. I don't think they're you know, the greatest tools to study. I prefer the word for word translations of the word of God. And I believe one is better than the other. Okay. We all have our dithers in regards to that. And I believe that, that there is no doubt that the devil, I believe it's all my heart is corrupting the word of God through translations. 
No doubt. I could not imagine me as a teacher sitting in a classroom and telling everybody to bring a different textbook or you bring this edition of the textbook and you bring the second edition and you bring the third. No, you're all going to show up in my classroom with the same edition of the same textbook. It eliminates the confusion. And I believe it is causing confusion in the body of Christ today. And then another issue that comes up and the final issue, and I'm not going to have time to go into this, is canonization. How did we take the 66 books and determine which one of them needed to be in the canon? It needed to be in the word canon means measuring rod or rule or standard. How did we decide which ones would be found worthy? And We'll talk about that next time. God bless you guys. Hope that you have a great day. Remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, working all things out for your good.